all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Southern Remedy with Dr. Jimmy Stewart on MPB Think Radio. To take part in today's show with your questions or comments, call 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can email the show, remedy at mpbonline.org. And now, Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at University of Mississippi Medical Center here with you this morning. A little overcast day, certainly a really big weather day this week with a couple of uh, lots of tornadoes actually in the state and depending on where you live. Now we had uh, one uh, less than a mile from where I live on Sunday afternoon. Uh, that's that kind of spring weather. When we have this kind of weather pattern, you can uh, have stormy weather that uh, really develops quickly. So uh, keep that in mind. Plan accordingly. Make sure, particularly if you have kids, that they know what to do in situations uh, uh, for emergencies. Um, if they're driving or coming home, they need to need to discuss that with them. Make sure they know how to stay safe. But I hope you are you are having a great Wednesday morning. This morning, this is Southern Remedy, the program where you can call in with your medical questions. Maybe it's a new medication or a new symptom that you might have. Whatever that question is, you can reach us this morning at one eight seven seven MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. We'll try to get your answers to you or point you in the right direction. If you're not able to call, but you'd still like to contact us with a question or a comment, you can always send those by email to remedy at mpbonline.org. Let's go to Francis from Natchez, I believe. Good morning, Francis. Thank you for calling this morning. Good morning, and thank you for having me on. I I got a question uh, about four months ago. I uh, could have been a little bit longer. Uh, My mouth. uh, Spicy foods. I used to drink a bottle of hot sauce with a meal. Uh, Crawfish, I loved them. Now I can't do it. And I did a little research, and I'm thinking it's called burning mouth syndrome. Uh, Can you help me? Yeah, so I don't know uh, a lot in depth about burning mouth syndrome, but there can be changes like that, even if you've enjoyed spicy foods. That's a lot of hot sauce, by the way, a whole bottle with a meal, if if, if that's not an exaggeration. But, um, yeah, so you can have changes like that and things that either – um, I'm, I, I'm gathering this is more of, of a different sensation in your mouth than in your stomach. No, it's not in my stomach. It's totally in my mouth. 
And my lips okay. Have, okay. have never chapped. I'm 65 yeah. years old. My lips yeah. have never chapped. I'm, I'm constantly using balm on my lips now. And part yeah. of my lips has a smooth sensation. The roof of my mouth has a smooth sensation. Yeah. So, so what you that so that may be some changes to the the nerve receptors in there. Now, a couple of things can cause this. Uh, the first thing is you can have different infections uh, that can affect the nerves around the face and mouth. That after you get over those, um, and it could just be like a little viral cold that you have, and or maybe no symptoms at all. You can have some changes both to the taste receptors, and it's not just a loss of taste like you you see with COVID. You can have uh, different uh, types of things that actually burn. The second most common thing would probably be an allergy to something that's in that. And just because you haven't had any problems with that for years or decades doesn't mean you can't develop it over time. So there's two different routes that you could go with this. You could either see an ear, nose, and throat specialist if you haven't already or an allergy immunologist. Those would be the two people that I would investigate um, and just with what you described, I might go the allergy immunologist route first, uh, just to see if they can help you. Um, it may be more of an avoidance, uh, of those types of foods that they're going to suggest, but there may be some things that they can suggest doing that maybe you can still enjoy those spicy foods, but, uh, taste and smell can be affected in those ways, uh, most commonly. Okay. I got taste, got smell. Just can't deal yeah, with the right. uh, burning and, well, and brushing my teeth. It, wow, it, it gets really worse then. Yeah, there's a there's a nerve that's called the trigeminal nerve that affects the face, and it also can affect parts of the interior of the mouth. And then there are several different nerves, like the glossopharyngeal nerve that innervates the interior of the mouth, and all of those can be susceptible to infections, particularly by viruses that may cause some things. I, yeah, I would I would check out either the allergist or the ENT doctor, and there may be some medications that they can put you on. Uh, a lot of times uh, there are a couple of different medications used to treat things like trigeminal neuralgia that may be of some help with that condition. But if the first thing you need is a good checkup just to see if there's something else that's going on. Okay, and one thing I forgot to tell you, I had an operation, I think it was November the 4th, on my third and fourth vertebrae, you know, in the back of my neck, could that have caused any of this? It's unlikely to cause it just because of the of the uh, the position that those vertebrae are, that they're usually, that's away from those nerves and where they come down and innervate the interior of the mouth. Wow. Uh, I, and I'm... I'm uh, that surgery. I'm assuming that they had an anterior approach where you have your scar on the front part of your neck. Yes, sir. Yeah. So that's unlikely to cause that. Uh, but that's good to let them know that they're going to see that scar, of course, and and know you had that done. Was that about the same time that you developed the symptoms? No, the symptoms developed about uh, November, December, January, about four okay. months after that. Okay. Yeah, and. You know, it's interesting, COVID's really brought to light some uh, speech and, and swallowing and, and language pathologists are, are sort of experts at retraining taste sensations with COVID. And again, it's not just a loss of taste, it can be changes in your taste. And I'm not saying you had COVID, but I mean, there's a lot of similar things that can happen to those nerves in the mouth where you can have a burning sensation or you can have that sort of smooth uh, sensation. But 
they need to look at it. They need to take a good history and get a little bit more information from you. And then hopefully they'll be able to, uh, to put a diagnosis for sure on that and then point you in the right direction with what they can do. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you for listening, and thank you for calling. This is Southern Remedy. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning. We've got Jeff on the line from Mobile, Alabama. Good morning, Jeff. Thank you for calling. What's your question this morning? Good morning. So my sister-in-law has got uh, tested positive for the COVID virus. She doesn't show any signs, so I'm guessing she's asymptomatic. She's not living with us, but she needs to move back in sooner or later. We both been vaccinated. When did that happen? Can she move back in, or is she going to have to stay out? Um, ideally, even if you're vaccinated with somebody who has active infection, if there's an ideal situation that she can get to that 10-day mark um, from the onset of symptoms or since she doesn't have any since the onset of that when she got that test. At that point, she should be safe to move back in. If for some reason you can't do that, then I would say isolate as much as possible. In other words, if she has her own room, own bathroom, and you can take things in there and out, I probably would wear a mask in the house like that. But since both you and the other people in the in the house are vaccinated, that should give you some degree of protection. Uh, now, I wouldn't just be all around her, you know, and uh, you know, just because you can still have some, uh, some, some about five percent of people with vaccines, depending on what the vaccine is, uh, may not be protected. But if if she needs to move back in, that's the way I would do it: is to try to. For that 10-day period from the time of testing, that's that's the time period where she should be at least a little bit isolated from you as much as possible. Well, like I said, she's had several tests, and each time she's tested positive. So that's why I say she's asymptomatic. But right. And the thought process is with, with even if, if you do have it and you're asymptomatic, you're not going to be transmitting it as much. But it is, particularly if it's one of these new variants, it is highly transmissible, even more so than the than the original ones that came through. Uh, but, you know, again, vaccination does provide a good deal of protection against that. But even asymptomatic, she still needs to, you know, isolate herself uh, away from other individuals for that 10-day period. Thank you. All right. Thank you for calling and uh, stay safe on the road there. Let's go to Rachel from Eupora. Good morning, Rachel. Thank you for calling this morning. Good morning, Doc. How are you? I am doing great this morning. What's your question? Well, um, okay, a little background. I have no thyroid, and I do take uh, levothyroxine. Recently, my uh, thyroid... um, hormones were diagnosed as not be, that I'm not getting enough of that hormone. So they upped the amount. And uh, in the meantime, I am having irregular heartbeat because probably because I don't have enough of that hormone in my body yet. I do have a an appointment with a cardiologist. But my question is, should I get my vaccine shots, my uh, coronavirus shots, before or after I get my thyroid heart issue resolved? I'm afraid of the uh, 
the vaccines because I know they do disrupt you. The second one in particular can be a little disruptive. I don't want to be any weaker or uh, unhealthier than I am now, you know, to get that second shot. Sure. Yeah, so that's a great question. So, you know, thyroid, uh, once you've had your thyroid removed or ablated uh, in one way or another, or if it's just not working, uh, the, the, what you're getting, that levothyroxine or synthroid is another name for it, that's a uh, replacement hormone uh, that you need for all of the different functions in your body to work well. Um, you can't live without that. So it can... Um, it can be a little bit tricky sometimes to get to the right level of that. And it's not a real quick process as you're finding out. Like when you, uh, when they do the testing to see if they have the right levels of hormone in your body um, and have to make a change, you really don't see much of a change in those lab values that they use to monitor that for up to six to eight weeks later. So it's a slow process. And you're right, you can have irregular heartbeat uh, uh, rhythms uh, as a result of not getting enough of that hormone uh, or too much. Uh, either way, you can have those. So it may be unrelated. It may not. Um, as far as getting the vaccine, while all that's being looked at, um, I would, you know, it's sort of a, it's a judgment call there. Now, the vaccine shouldn't cause any more problems to your heart. The biggest side effects uh, with them are going to be, uh, you know, feeling like you have the flu a little bit for about 24 hour period. Most people do well with that. A lot of people don't have any symptoms, um, but those are usually self-limiting. And other than feeling bad, it's probably not going to impact either your thyroid condition right now or uh, an irregular heartbeat. Uh, but that being said, you know, if you're going to see the cardiologist in the next couple of weeks, you may just want to, you know, get a clean bill of health from them first and, uh, or at least have them, you know, diagnose what your, um, what your potential arrhythmia is and then ask them, them that too, while you're there, Hey, should, is it okay for me to get that? But I think overall it's fairly safe. It shouldn't, uh, it shouldn't interfere with uh, either of those conditions. Okay, but if I feel fearful about that, it's understandable, correct? Oh, sure. Uh, yeah. No, look, I don't want to, and, wanna, and I, I hope I didn't, I didn't belittle that in any way. Oh, um, no. You know, no, 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 no. Yeah, uh, it's, no, it's, I have in, a friend who keeps bugging me to get my vaccine, and uh, she knows what I'm going through, basically, and uh, I'm... I'm uh, erring on the side of not getting my vaccines until I get this resolved. Uh, yeah, I think, I, that's, I, think, I think that's fine. I think, you know, you need to, again, you need to weigh. And I, the one thing I would do, anytime somebody's fearful about something medical, you need to get as much information as possible from the people who know the best about what you have and about you. So I would have those discussions with your cardiologist, with your endocrinologist, and get their input on it, and then you can make the decision on that. And the, the more information you get, the, the better you can be uh, in a situation where you can make the right decision. And fit, look, we all get afraid of different things. Uh, my job as a physician is to give the evidence to people so that 
with them, we can make a decision about what the best thing for them would be. So, yeah, fears. I mean, that's not something to apologize about or anything like that. That is a normal human emotion uh, that is uh, stems from some concerns about something. And uh, the first thing you need to do is know more about those situations in order to make that right decision. So, yeah, I, I think you're fine. I think your friend probably is uh, trying to, you know, to encourage you to be protected as much as possible. I do think at some point you, you do. It sounds like you would benefit from getting the vaccine. Um, but timing wise, you know, that's a decision between you and your physician. OK, thank you. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy Stewart with you this morning, answering your questions and taking your calls about any kind of health care issue that you might have. The number to call this morning is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. We're going to go to Tom in Brandon. Good morning, Tom. What's your question this morning? Good morning, doctor. Uh, I guess now that Kay is moving to Massachusetts, I guess I'll take up the mantle of asking the blood pressure questions. Uh, <laughs> okay. I, I, for, the, for my entire life, I've always heard that uh, as you age, your blood pressure, your sy- systemic anyway, uh, I mean your systolic, uh, increases as you age. But what I read in recent history is that we should always try and keep it below 120. So what I need is a clarification. You've probably answered this before, but I probably have forgotten the answer. But what should your blood pressure be when you age? I'm 75 at the moment. Yeah, Uh, great question, common one. And uh, over time, that answer has changed based on the data, looking at what are the outcomes with higher blood pressures and lower blood pressures. So in other words, You know, what's the correlation between as you age, if you let your blood pressure get higher, um, a little bit of the physiology behind that. So as you age, if you have uh, hardening of the arteries and it could, you know, most people hear that and they're like, well, I don't have a I hadn't had a heart attack. I hadn't had a stroke. How can I have hardening of the arteries? You can have damage to your arteries that cause that systolic. That's that top number that you mentioned to go up over time. And that that occurs when you have a, a blood vessel, an artery, uh, arteries in your body that are stiffer. They're not as compliant. So instead of being a nice rubber tube, 
that helps to uh, to push blood through your body. It's more like a cast iron pipe. Uh, and when it becomes like that, the pressure in that top number goes a lot higher. And usually the bottom number is the same in the normal range or even lower. So, um, but all that aside, that's not a normal process. Uh, if you look at people who don't have sort of a Western diet, who are very active throughout their lives, not a whole lot of people in the world like this anymore, but the small uh, little pockets uh, where you can find people living that way, their blood, blood pressures are just fine. And you can find that's not a given with everybody, even in the United States, uh, as they get older. Uh, but in some individuals, that top number, as the arteries get a little bit more stiffer, uh, that goes up. Now, what we know from a, a blood pressure control standpoint is even in those individuals, you really need to try to get the blood pressure less than 130 on the top and less than 80 on the bottom for all ages. There can be some exceptions in individuals, though, particularly if that top number is really high, but the bottom number is really low. If you there's not really one any blood pressure medication that uh, lowers just that top number. So it's both of those numbers go down and up together. So if you treat that top number aggressively in somebody who has a lower diastolic, you may actually cause some problems. So you can pass out, you can have a heart attack or a stroke if you get the blood pressure too low. So you do have to keep that in mind as you're treating it. So uh, as much as you can, though, you do need to get that top number less than 130. There's some great uh, data in the last 10 or 15 years with a, a number of studies that have shown some improvements in, uh, big improvements in uh, cognitive ability, dementia, uh, prevention, uh, kid, uh, progression to kidney failure, stroke, heart attack, particularly stroke is, is one of the bigger ones. So you can, if you can push that number down uh, and you're not having any side effects or any other concerns, that's the thing to do to try to get that less than 130 over 80. All right. Well, let me ask you a direct question. And uh, in the past few years, my blood pressure has been uh, in the 120s, uh, systolic, and I'm always between 70 and 80, uh, diastolic. Uh, in recent weeks or months, uh, it snuck up into the 130s on the systolic. My diastolic is still the same. Should I ask my GP for uh, a prescription for uh, blood pressure medicine? Uh, I think, you know, you, you can have periods of time that, that that the blood pressure goes up like that. Since you're really close to what the goal is, I would probably give it a couple of more weeks and monitor it at home. Home monitoring is very useful. Uh, it's very helpful to your physician for them to have that. So I would I would get those numbers written down or in an electronic format and give it to them so they can see sort of the trend. But, you know, at those numbers, you're really talking about cumulative risk over time. And even at your age, you, you really, you know, two or three weeks at that blood at increased blood pressure is not going to be a huge risk to you. So I would probably give it a few more weeks and see what the blood pressure is going to do. Make sure that you're doing all the right things like reducing your salt, making sure that you're eating the correct, uh, you know, types of foods like a, the DASH diet. Um, and staying active. So if those are some things that you haven't been doing the last couple of weeks, 
I'd try to modulate it with that. And if it's still persistent after another three or four weeks, that's the point where I would call your physician. Okay. Well, thank you, doctor. All right, Tom, you take care. Let's uh, go to Sandy in Madison. Good morning, Sandy. This is Southern Remedy. Uh, Good morning. My question is about a friend who has bradycardia. He recently Uh did an echo and did a treadmill stress test. And after that, his doctor, who is a cardiologist, recommended that he get uh, angioplasty. And so they told him, if you have any blockage, we'll go ahead and put a stent in when we do the angioplasty. So I'm thinking that seems very invasive when he's not having any symptoms of coronary blockage. Is there another way for them to check that he can request them to check for coronary blockage other than angioplasty? Yeah, great questions. So um, I'm presuming that he had this testing done for some reason. So whether that was, you know, a because uh, uh, both of those, uh, you know, the treadmill uh, and the echo are two ways to look at heart function. Um, uh, and, and there's others, too. There's myocardial test uh, perfusion tests that you can get. Some of those uh, have to do with an injection of, of, a, sub, of a medication that increases your heart rate a little bit. But really, uh, it sounds like those are those two tests are pretty specific about looking at changes on the EKG with the treadmill. And then the echo helps look at heart function. So I'm presuming if they wanted, wanted to go to the next step of doing the cardiac catheterization, that is really the gold standard for looking at the any kind of blockage. So there are screening tests like the treadmill stress test. There are myocardial perfusion scans and, and uh, echocardiograms. So all of those, depending on the individual person and what they can do, um, like if they can walk on a treadmill, all of those are the initial test. And if they see something wrong on those tests, that's when they usually recommend that you go to the cardiac catheterization. So the cardiac catheterization they, they have a small um, catheter that most of the time now people used to go in. They used to go in through your femoral arteries and your groin uh, and, and uh, to uh, look at the arteries in the heart. Now they do it through the wrist. It's much less invasive and it has a quicker recovery time and less complications. And then they, they inject a small amount of dye in those, uh, in those uh, arteries to your heart, your coronary arteries. And if there's a blockage, the, the beauty of it is like you just described, is they can go ahead and fix that right then and there. Um, and we, we don't, you really don't do angioplasty without stenting anymore. That was the initial thing that they had was angioplasty. But stenting, if you have a blockage and they can stent that, that's actually a great way to reduce the risk of a heart attack even without symptoms. Uh, so you don't have to have full-blown symptoms to have heart disease. Most people don't realize this, but you, you have to have a blockage in, a, in an artery of 90% or more. So it has to be 90% occluded before you start to have symptoms. So even though you don't have symptoms, you could still have some blockage. So by what you've told me, I think your friend is, that's, that's the, the, you know, the, I don't think they're being overly aggressive with that. Um, it sounds like that's that based on those initial tests that he had, those were the screening tests. And if there were some 
problems there, then the cardiac catheterization would be the next thing. Now, if they don't find anything, that's great. Um, and that's some great evidence. That's really the gold standard is doing that catheterization to say, yeah, you don't have any blockage here. We don't have to do anything uh, to, uh, to open anything up. Okay. I actually got copies of his test results. Is there a particular uh -huh. item on either the echo or the treadmill test uh, results that would indicate blockage? Is there a way to determine based on those tests which, which parameter on either of those tests would indicate some sort of blockage? What did they see is what I'm asking. Yeah, San Sandy, it's a lot of different things. So you could have uh, changes in the EKG itself. Uh, on the treadmill, in, in the pattern and where you see it is important. The echo, you can see segmental wall um, uh, abnormalities so that the wall of the heart is not beating. So that's, it's really some technical stuff. And it's not just one thing where it's like, okay, well, that's the one thing that we look at. Uh, for either of those tests, there's about 10 different things that you can see that might be abnormal. So you know, and the cardiologists are the experts in that. So if they are, and, you know, I, I don't know of any cardiologist that jumps toward, you know, just toward the, the uh, catheterization. Uh, like I said, if they see something on there, um, that would be that would be the next step. So, you know, I can't just say definitively, okay, if they see ST segment depression or ST segment elevation, because uh, there's so many different things and strain patterns that they could have seen at different points in that test. If he's doing a treadmill, there's five different stages to that. There are uh, heart rate abnormalities that you can see with it. So it's it's a really complicated, uh, lots of different information that you can get with both of those. So would it be beneficial to get a copy of his previous echo and treadmill test to see what the, what the differences are from the last time he did it to this time? And maybe that would give an indication I really think it's if if you're asking to look at the information yourself, I don't think that's the right thing to do because you may misinterpret that. So a cardiologist are the ones who are the experts, even, even me. I mean, I, I don't even look at it myself, and I know a lot about it, but I'm not a cardiologist. So if I have questions about it, I'm going to ask the cardiologist who saw my patient. So that would be a question to ask the cardiologist that did the testing. Um, and you can, you know, if he wants a second opinion, that's fine. You can get a second opinion with another cardiologist, though. I wouldn't ask anybody else, including myself, to second guess a cardiologist on it. Right. I'm just trying, I'm actually trying to put together a list of questions for him to address with his cardiologist. That's why the call to yeah. you. Yeah. And, and I think uh, you could make it pre pretty simple by just saying, hey, what, what are the changes on both of these tests? that, uh, you know, that, that you want to get the cardiac catheterization. I think that would be the easiest way to say it. Okay. That makes sense. I appreciate it so much. All right. Thank you for calling. You have a great morning. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy.
Hi, I'm Walt Grayson. You can now listen to the wild, weird, and wonderful stories of Mississippi with Mile Marker. Slowly, we started, you know, picking these turtles up and saving them. I'll stop traffic, grab one out of the road. And then our friends found out, and our vet would call us. Join me as we hit the roads of Mississippi on Mile Marker. We are now a full-fledged, nonprofit turtle rescue. You can listen by going to mpbonline.org slash radio or by using your favorite podcasting app. Mile Marker, a Mississippi Roads podcast. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Seven Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy Stewart with you this morning, answering your questions and taking your calls about any kind of healthcare question that you might have. Let's go to Roger in Florence. Good morning, Roger. Thank you for calling this morning. Good morning. Thank you for your program. One question is very general and one is more personal. But as to blood pressure uh, testing, they make some nice gadgets. They're not very expensive. And they help you can take your blood pressure and you can readings. And I wonder about those, how accurate they are and whether they're instructed. I use one. Uh, and they... And, so that's one question. And based on, oh, and the other thing about that is I've noticed over the years, it used to be that you'd go in and get your blood pressure taken, and it took, excuse me, to get an electrocardiogram, and they'd wire you up, and it would take quite a while for one. Now you go in, and they stick a few wires on you, and it takes about three minutes, and they've got what they need. What's the difference in those measurements? Blood pressure measurements, home remedy type blood pressure machines, and uh, versus uh, professional and those electrocardiograms. And then I got a question about my own uh, blood pressure, but maybe you want to address those first ones for your audience. First. Yeah, yeah, we can. Let's. I tell you what. Let's talk about the testing right quick. So. Uh, you know, there's plenty of, of really good monitors, blood pressure monitors that you can uh, you can get at home. And as I mentioned with a previous caller, it's really good information that you can give your physician um, to help control your blood pressure. Because, you know, if you think about it, if you only go to your physician every three, six months, maybe yearly, that's just one time period, very short time period in the office. And a lot of people have what's called white coat hypertension, where they, their blood pressure goes up when they come in the office. And what we really need to know is what your blood pressure is those other times of the day. So without getting too, you know, you don't need to be tied down to a blood pressure cuff 24-7, but it is useful from time to time to have those uh, what we call home blood pressures or ambulatory blood pressures. And the monitors they have now are really fairly accurate. They're, you don't have to get really fancy with it. I would caution the people against getting some types. I am not a fan of the wrist monitors. I know they're a lot more comfortable for some people, but they are much more inaccurate and they are much more successful to giving you a lot of, of readings that either too high or too low. So the ones that fit on your upper arm that are automated um, are are generally really useful. Usually there's between you know twenty to fifty dollars it is if you want to get really technical taking three blood pressures and averaging those is the best thing to do and there are some machines that do that for you um, you want to make sure that you're still you know blood pressure is one of those things those measurements that is so 
affected by different things. If you're talking, if you're walking around, or you you sit down right quick and then take it, it they can all be uh, the blood pressures can be affected by those types of things. So it's not just the blood pressure monitor, but how you take it um, at home. But any of those would be fine. But again, I would use one that that is on the upper part of your arm um, uh, that is is meant for that. Make sure that the cuff size is is accurate. Um, and your pharmacist can help you with that at your pharmacy to try to get the right type in the um, the correct one. But a wrist monitor, I am not a fan, again, because they're not very reliable, and you get different results with that. As far as EKGs, uh, yeah, we've gotten a lot more EKG machines that are a lot more accurate and don't take as long to get it. It's a, uh, They've perfected a lot of the software and the devices, uh, so that's the reason why they can you know do it a lot quicker in the office. Uh, with an EKG. A lot of people say, how come I don't, you know, I used to get an EKG every time I came in as a screen. Uh, not that accurate, not that useful um, as a screening without having symptoms. So that's the reason why that sort of dropped off. Um, uh, but yeah, they're a lot easier to do and it doesn't take uh, hardly any time to uh, hook people up and, uh, and get that EKG. And Roger, that's I think you had helpful. one more question. Yeah, that's real helpful. Thank you. And that's a good explanation. Uh, I had a uh, heart procedure. Well, I had I, I began to realize that as I was working around, I'd have these episodes, I call them episodes, where I would just get profoundly weak, and I'd have to stop whatever I'm doing out in the woods or in the yard or anything and just want to lie down while I bed over at the waist and just get through it and go on working. And I got tired of that, finally went in, and sure enough, they did the EKGs and the treadmill and put me in the hospital and did a stent. I think it's a left anterior descending artery stent. Mm -hmm. And then one of the branch arteries they enlarged or something, uh, doing it, you know, the modern way. So I wasn't dope. And that helped a lot. It's several years ago, but, uh, in the last couple of years, uh, I have the I, I have recurring uh, episodes of that feeling, usually in the morning. I can't associate it with any particular activity or any drugs. I'm taking a baby, I know, 83 milligram aspirin every night, but that's not anyway. That's the only one I take that, according to the information, is supposed to have any effect on on blood pressure. But I'll put my little. Uh, handy dandy home blood pressure cuff on take blood pressure and shoot it'll be 102 over 50 or 109 over 61 and stuff like that and uh several times and uh and after a while later today I've, I've started trying to write it down i'm not very good at keeping good records but and it'll be and i'll be feeling better and it'll be back up where I think my normal is running about 120, 125, uh, over 60 or 70, which is pretty good for an 82-year-old. But I, I'm not uh, confident that I'm not having something else developing. What would be causing, do you think, a low blood pressure tendency most, not most mornings, but frequently in the morning? 
Yeah, uh, uh, I, there's a number of things, Roger. I think uh, you hit one of them. Uh, the blood pressure may be a little bit too low in the morning. Sometimes even on the same blood pressure regimen, uh, you know, they, they may be able to move some of the medications when you take them around. Uh, actually taking them at night is now, you know, one of the, the looked at as one of the best times to take blood pressure medication. But it could be a lots of stuff, things. Since you've had damage to your, or at least a blockage in your arteries to your heart, you can have subtle symptoms like that um, that, uh, that could cause, uh, that could be caused by your heart. So I, I'd probably touch base with, with whoever monitors your, your blood pressure. And, uh, and since you, you know, had the heart problems before, a cardiologist and it may be nothing, you know, it may be that they want to do some, repeat some of that initial testing, not, not necessarily the heart cath, just to see if you had any changes on it. Uh, and if you have, then, you know, they can, they can intervene there, but that would be the thing that I would do first. Cause it, you're right. It can be subtle. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio, or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning, and I got some really good calls this morning. We're going to continue those with Amy from St. Francisville. Good morning, Amy. Good morning. How are you doing? Good. I was just down in your neck of the woods not too, uh, uh, two weekends ago uh, for uh, track meet down there in Silliman. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I live, um, I live in St. Francisville, but the track meet was where, you said? Silliman. Uh, my husband is a teacher there. He retired this past year. So, oh, yeah. there we go. Yeah, he taught there for 31 years, so yes, sir. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> What's your question this morning? Okay. Um, my question is, is how can a person have malabsorption issues, I guess, and be overweight? Because I've been told several times that my body doesn't absorb the vitamins, I, and but I'm not a small person, so I would kind of think that you would be on the puny side if that was the case. But... Uh, and I was just wondering, I have MS. I have another sister that has MS, and I have another sister that probably does. So I don't know if that's anything to do with the absorption of the body, if that affects it in any way. And just your advice on that. Sure. Yeah, so malabsorption uh, can be a number of things. And I think most of the time when you hear that, you think uh, a lot of people think, okay, well, 
you should be losing weight, you're not getting enough calories, you're not able to or- absorb a lot of things. But it can be very subtle because there's different parts in the intestines and in the GI tract that absorb different nutrients. You can have selective deficiencies with some vitamins or minerals, uh, uh, namely vitamins, um, and it and not be you know not be underweight or not be losing weight. So one of the most common ones is B12 deficiency, and that can be because of uh, a lack of intrinsic factor or some damage to a part of the intestine that normally absorbs vitamin B12. Um, but there, there are lots of others there, too. So celiac is a condition that uh, can cause that. Uh, there's different testing that they can do for that and endoscopy as well. A GI uh, doctor or the one sort of that, that that's in their ballpark. But, yeah, you don't have to be, uh, you know, you don't have to be underweight to have those. And it doesn't need to be ignored, you know, like that. So it can be very selective depending on what vitamin deficiencies that you have. So if you hadn't seen a GI doctor, I probably would. Now, as far as like related to MS, I'm not aware of an association there, although a lot of these conditions can be uh, modulated by the immune system. And um, certainly MS is uh, tied into the immune system, but also a lot of the malabsorption uh, GI deficiencies are too. Okay. Well, thank you very much. All right. Thank you for calling. We're going to go to John in Jackson. Good morning, John. What's your question this morning? Yes, doctor. Thank you for taking my call. Yes, doctor. I'm a 73-year-old male, and I have chronic nausea. I've been suffering from it from the, for the past two years, and recently became aware of a drug called Marinol, which is a synthetic uh-huh. derivative of marijuana. And I've had several friends out of state tell me they've had great success with this drug for nausea, but I cannot find a doctor in Mississippi to prescribe it. What is the hesitancy of prescribing a FDA-approved drug? Yeah, so so the uh, you know Marinol has been used in a lot of different situations. A lot of physicians just don't feel comfortable doing that, and mar- most of the time I've seen Marinol prescribed has been. Uh, a specialist in that area. So you're probably either looking at a GI doctor or somebody who has some experience in that. I think there's just a lot of concern about addiction potential. I've never heard of Marinol being a big addiction potential because of the, um, because of the, the THC, uh, you know, association uh, with marijuana. But I, I, I would check out with the GI specialist first and see if they would, they would be willing or if that would be appropriate for you. Now, uh, the biggest thing is making sure that other diagnoses that couldn't be uh, corrected uh, could be, you know, those things could be um, evaluated and looked at first. But um, I think you probably could find somebody, you know, where uh, particularly in the Jackson area, a GI doctor might be one to, to help prescribe that. And there's a couple of it, a lot of times you can go online or have somebody go online to look for different medical trials looking at certain medications. Um, and I'm not aware if there are any with Marinol, but that may be another way to, number one, get the medication, but also to do it in a way that, you know, is, is easier for you to get it. I have gone to two GI doctors, my primary doctor, and have been unsuccessful in in each case. 
Yeah, it's and and one other thing that I've heard people do is to you know go out of state uh, for a if you can if that's an option for you to go to like a, a, a regional. Uh, expert in this. And, um, you know, that could be Memphis, that could be New Orleans. I'm not, I'd I'd have to look at it. And, and, but that may be something too, that you could do. All righty, doctor. Thank you very much. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, an associate professor of preventive medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app.